Hey, thanks for downloading the Cross Defense Podcast. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfman. Today we have two topics. We're gonna we're gonna answer this question. Have you heard this before? Where Luther said that the Bible is the manger that brings us Jesus. So it's all humble and naughty and everything, but at least Jesus is in there. Is that is Luther a higher critic? And we take up the Nunc Dimittis, this great song of Simeon that we sing in the liturgy. What was the context of it? We meditate on it for a while. Hope you enjoy. Thanks for downloading. Here's the show. I don't know why they don't let me sing the bump music. I don't know why. Talk to the manager. Hey, welcome to Cross Defense. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller here, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas, broadcasting this Monday live from the Tower Studio here in Austin. Oh, this is so cool. Uh, we're gonna. I got a couple of things to talk about. We'll have to see how the conversation unrolls. By, by the way, the Cross Defense here, we're... We're working on beating back the devil's temptation of thinking that theology is boring. This is a acedia, acadia. I don't know how to actually say the word. I should figure that out someday. But this is this idea of tuper, this slothfulness when it comes to having a theological mind. And the devil comes along and he says, look, I think that theology, you should be bored with theology, that you should be bored with the Bible, that you should be bored with thinking about things. There's so much more exciting stuff to think about. That is a lie from the father of lies, and so we want to just dig in and do some theology and enjoy ourselves with it. See the joy of it. Now, i got a couple things I'm interested in today. One is an article that's half done. Maybe, you know, it might be more like five-sixths done. I bet you I could just write a paragraph and finish this thing. That is addressing this old trope, this old cliché, that Martin Luther said that the Bible is the manger that gives us Jesus. And this is a favorite. Oh, I remember learning this back in the old liberal days where this, the, the idea is that the Bible is not perfect. It's not holy. It's not, you, it, 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 the Bible has all sorts of, sorts of errors in it, like knots in the wood and splinters, just like the manger would have been an old kind of beat up sort of thing, but that it brings us Jesus. Now this this was a classic to support the the dangerous theology of gospel reductionism. Now what's gospel reductionism? Gospel reductionism is, says, well look, the important part of the Bible is the gospel parts, the parts about Jesus, the parts about the resurrection, the parts about the forgiveness of sins. Those are the parts that God inspired. Those are the parts that are authoritative for us, and those are the parts that we need to listen to. And all the rest, well, that's mostly traditions of men. That's mostly uh, ideas that the prophets themselves had. And so we can assess those, we can stand above those and determine if we like them or not. Now, that's, that's kind of basic gospel reductionism. And this quotation from Luther is used to support it. Oh, the, 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 this idea that you got a rough, old, beat-up book, but the glory of it is what it holds, Jesus. Now, what I'd like to do is look into the texts where Luther says that. I mean, look at just look at how the words that he used. I found one, two, three, four passages where Luther uses this language and say, is that actually what Luther believes? Was Martin Luther a higher critic? So that's one idea. The other idea is to talk about the Nunc Dimittis, which we had yesterday. It was the 40th day after, can you imagine 40 days it's been since Christmas now? So it's 40 days since Christmas yesterday. So 41 days today. 
And so that was the day that Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple. And they offered the two turtle doves for Mary's purification. And they met Simeon and Anna there. And Simeon takes into his arms the baby Jesus and says, Lord, now I'm ready to die. <laughs> and this is an amazing thing for us because we, I mean, we don't think about this enough, but we should remember that part of life, part of our, our living in this world is to prepare to die. I mean, all of us are going to die eventually unless the Lord comes back. But everyone's like, whoa, we got to die? It's like, it's, it'd be like, can you imagine living all day and, and not thinking that at one point at, during the night you're going to have to go to sleep? So all of a sudden the sun's down and you're exhausted. You're like, what? I got to sleep? Well, yeah, you got to sleep. And this is for us. We got to die. And how do, we, how do we be ready for it? How, do we, how can we be good at dying? That's part of what it means to be a Christian. The art of dying well kind of thing. So Simeon teaches that. That's what's on my mind. Well, let's go for the Luther stuff first and see how we do. And then if we run out of time, uh, if we run out of gas with Luther, we'll take up the Nook Domenus. How's that sound? Okay. Uh, it's been a favorite metaphor of the higher critics. Here's the, uh, here's the quote. The Bible, like a manger, has crooked wood and splinters, but in it we find Christ. Now that's how that's normally used. So I want to take a look at what Luther says. Now, here's the first one, and this is perhaps the most famous. This is Luther's Introduction to the Old Testament, published first in 1523, later edited in 1545. Now, you guys are sitting there thinking, oh, now we've got to listen to a Luther quote, turn it all. Oh, no. Don't. Don't go away. Stick with me here. There's nothing more. Okay, here's Luther. In order that those who are not more familiar with it may have instruction and guidance for reading the Old Testament with profit, I have prepared this preface to the best of the ability God has given me. I beg and really caution every pious Christian not to be offended by the simplicity of the language and the stories frequently encountered there, that is in the Old Testament, but fully realize that however simple they may seem, these are the very words, works, judgments, and deeds of the majesty, power, and wisdom of the Most High God. For these are the scriptures which make fools of all the wise and understanding and are open only to the small and simple, as Christ says in Matthew 11, verse 25. Therefore, dismiss your own opinions and feelings and think of the scriptures as the loftiest and noblest of holy things, as the richest of minds which can never be sufficiently explored in order that you may find that divine wisdom which God here lays before you in such simple guise as to quench all pride. Now that's come up twice. And it's a pretty important idea that the scriptures come to us in great simplicity for a, for a spiritual reason, not even a theological, for a spiritual reason. The Lord arranges the scripture in such a way that only humility can gain access, that, we would be, that our pride would be in offended at the simplicity with which the Lord presents his majesty to us. Luther continues. Here you will find the swaddling cloths and the manger in which Christ lies and to which the angel points the shepherds, Luke 2. Simple and lowly are the swaddling clothes, but dear is the treasure 
Christ who lies in them. Oh, that's just fantastic. Now, th there's a couple of things here. Number one, Luther points out that the Bible, unlike a lot of other holy books, is not a sort of highfalutin kind of thing, but that it, it tells us simple stories with simple language of simple people. Now, this does not mean that there's a, not a profound theological depth to be explored and discovered in the Scripture, not at all, but that the Lord presents himself to us in, in profound humility so that the pride of man will always be offended by the Scriptures. This is the point, and, and, and it's, a prof it's, a, it's an utterly uh, brilliant and profound point. I mean, St. Paul makes the same point that the that the we we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jew a, a scandalon it says to the Jew and foolishness to the Greek that 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 human wisdom always wants something more profound but the Lord comes to us in in this in this hidden simplicity he covers his majesty in fact, we can consider how the, the majesty of God, because it's so dangerous to us, must be covered. I mean, it's the reason why God places himself in the tabernacle, right? If you just walk up in front of the glory of God and say, what's cooking? The answer is you. You're cooking. <laughs> I mean, you're toast. You're done for. Nobody can look on my face and live, the Lord says to Moses. And so we can't we can't approach the bare glory of God without being destroyed because of our unholiness. So the Lord cloaks himself. He cloaks himself in the flesh and blood of Jesus. He cloaks himself in the crucifixion, in the suffering, in the blood of Jesus. And he cloaks himself in the simplicity of the scriptures. Now, do you think that Luther is saying that the Bible has all sorts of imperfections? No, that's not what he's saying at all. He's, he's saying that the, that the simplicity of the scriptures is delivering to us a divine majesty, and it comes to us like this so that we would have to humble ourselves to see it. I mean, there's a danger that we face when we come to the scriptures, that we would be led by our own opinions or, or feelings. In fact, Luther said it like this. He says, we have to dismiss our own opinions and feelings and think of the scriptures as the loftiest and the noblest of holy things, as the richest of minds which can never be sufficiently explored. In other words, Luther recognizes the danger that we would come to the scriptures and bring our own thinking, our own reason, our own feelings, or our own experiences above the, the word of God. The old word for this, we, we, we've talked about this a number of times here, but this is helpful to remember. The word for this is the magisterial use. We have the ministerial use and the magisterial use. So the magisterial use is the rule, that's like a magistrate, and the ministerial use is like a servant role. And we normally talk about the magisterial or ministerial use of reason. That's right. Our reason doesn't stand above the scriptures like king and lord to decide what it likes and what it doesn't. No, we, we have to stand below the scriptures, the ministerial use of scripture, and let the Lord's word have authority. But not only do we have the ministerial use of, of reason, we have the ministerial use of feelings. We have the ministerial use of experience. We have the ministerial use of emotion. We have the ministerial use of history. We have the ministerial use of the fathers of the church. They all have to serve the text, and the Scripture alone stands above all of these things. Now, to do that is an, is an actual act of humility. To look at the Scripture and say, this book, 
is going to be the book that teaches me about life and death, about God and myself, about sin and redemption. It requires humility. So the Lord uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Here's another quote from Luther. This is, ooh, this is preaching from his commentary on Genesis 26. This is kind of something. It's true that God wanted to counteract this curiosity. That means the kind of instinctive theological curiosity of our reason. He wanted to counteract this curiosity at the very beginning, for this is how he set forth his will and counsel. I will reveal my foreknowledge and predestination to you in an extraordinary manner, but not by this way of reason and carnal wisdom as you imagine. This is how I will do so. From an unrevealed God, I will become a revealed God. Nevertheless, I will remain the same God. I will be made flesh or send my son. He shall die for your sins and rise again from the dead. And in this way, I will fulfill your desire in order that you may be able to know whether you are predestined or not. Behold, this is my son. Listen to him. Look at him as he lies in the manger and on the lap of his mother, as he hangs on the cross. Observe what he does and what he says. There you will surely take hold of me. For he who, seeks, for he who sees me, Christ, says Christ, also sees the Father himself. John 14, 9. If you listen to him, if you are baptized in his name and love his word, you are surely predestined and are certain of your salvation. But if you revile or despise the word, then you're damned. For he, does not, he who does not believe is condemned. Mark 16. Now how fantastic to think that we have to, we're, we, we have this, theological curiosity that wants to know God. We want to see God. We want to clamor up to heaven and get a glimpse of God. We want to, I think Luther uses this phrase sometimes, we want to catch him in the shower. I don't actually know if Luther says that because I don't know if they had showers back then. I'm going to have to investigate that one. But this is the idea. You always want to, we want to see God unveiled and, 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 and Luther says, look, look, God does it the other way. He hides himself so that he can come to you. You're not supposed to go looking for him. Who will ascend to heaven? Who will dig him out of the grave? No. But the Lord is near to you, says St. Paul in Romans. And he's near to you in the word preached. Luther continues. You must kill the other thoughts and the ways of reason or of the flesh, for God detests them. The only thing you have to do is to receive the Son, so that Christ is welcome in your heart, in his birth, miracles, and cross. For here is the book of life in which you have been written. And this is the only and the most efficacious remedy for that horrible disease because of which human beings in their investigation of God want to proceed in a speculative manner and eventually rush into despair or contempt. If you want to escape despair, hatred, and blasphemy of God, give up your speculation about the hidden God and cease to strive in vain to see the face of God. Otherwise, you will have to remain perpetually in unbelief and damnation, and you will have to perish. For he who doubts does not believe, and he who does not believe is condemned. So Luther, 
Now, this is incredibly pastoral. I mean, one of the geniuses of Lutheran theology, I continue to be convinced, is that it is extremely pastoral. It is concerned with the assurance of salvation. It is concerned with, with certainty. Uh, it is concerned with being able to know and have the confidence that God, in fact, is our God for us. That he, that he loves us and he delights in us. And Luther says, look, we're born with this inbred desire to try to figure this out on our own, to try to ascend into heaven, to try to, to speculate or, or reason or investigate our way up into God's hidden and divine majesty. And Luther says that has to be given up because the Lord comes down to us in humility, in Christ, in the manger, in the miracles, in the crucifixion. God is there. And when we see God in Christ, we see God. When we see the Son, we see the Father. When we see Jesus in his humility, we are seeing how God wants to reveal himself to us, even as he hides his glory from, from us. And that's the point. That's what the scriptures are doing. That's what the scriptures are driving us to. So it's fantastic. All right, we're going to take a break now, and we'll be back on the other side to keep. I want to push this a little bit further. We got two more uh, quotations to investigate, so stay with me. We'll be right back, right here on Cross Defense. I'm Pastor Ken Bomberger. Join me weekday mornings at 7.15 for Oratio, your time of scripture, meditation, and music on KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Defense. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller here, pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas, broadcasting this afternoon from the Tower Studio. Uh, talking about Luther. Oh, but Andy Bates told me during the break he wants to hear about the Nunc Dimittis. So let's roll through some Luther quotes. To keep. We're talking about how there's this accusation, hey, Martin Luther is basically a higher critic because he said that the Bible is the manger that gives to us the baby Jesus. As if the, the manger doesn't matter, it's just wood and rock and stuff animal spit but the jesus in the middle of the manger that's what matters that is now i hope we see so far that that's not what luther's talking about and i want to talk about two more texts i mean luther this is and this by the way is why luther is good i mean luther let me let me make a little argument here martin luther is good if and only if he points our attention our ears and our imaginations to jesus and the bible and Martin Luther points our attention to Jesus and the Bible. Therefore, Martin Luther is good. <laughs> That's the argument. Now, the first part is pretty important. That, it, that, that And this is true for any pastor, any theologian, any father or mother teaching their children the doctrine. But Luther is constantly pushing us away from theological speculation to the certainty of the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's constantly pushing us from spiritual curiosity to the words of the Scripture. Now, that's the exact opposite of the higher criticism. Okay, okay. Here's one more. This is, uh, where is this from? 
a brief instruction on what to look for and to expect in the Gospels. From 1521, that's early Luther. That's only four years after the 95 Theses. That's a famous year for him, writing, by the way, too, 1521. Here's what he says. What a sin and shame it is that we Christians have come to be so neglectful of the gospel that we not only fail to understand it, but even have to be shown by other books and commentaries what to look for and to expect in it. Now the gospels and epistles of the apostles were written for this very purpose. They want themselves to be our guides, to direct us to the writings of the prophets and of Moses in the Old Testament, so that we might there read and see for ourselves how Christ is wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in the manger, that is, how he is comprehended in the writings of the prophets. It is there that people like us should read and study, drill ourselves, and see what Christ is, for what purpose he has been given, how he was promised, and how all Scripture tends toward him. For he himself says in John 5, If you believed Moses, you would also believe me, for he wrote of me. And again, also John 5, Search and look up the Scriptures, for it is they that bear witness to me. Now you get the point here. Luther's saying, look, the whole Bible, beginning to end, Old Testament and New Testament, is all about Jesus. Now, I was having a bit of an argument with my buddy, Pastor Ketchmeyer. We're always arguing. We've been arguing. Since we met each other, we were arguing about theology. It's great. If you don't have somebody that you're always arguing with theology about, just go find them. I don't know. We need to make an app for that, some sort of app to find a theological. Well, I guess that just call it Facebook or Twitter. YouTube comments. Anyhow, find a friend to argue with. So I was arguing with Pastor Ketchmeyer about what were we talking about? Oh, yeah. I told him, everybody knows that the Old Testament is about Jesus. We don't need to talk about that anymore. And he said, Brian, you are wrong. Nobody, everybody forgets it. And I think in this case, I was wrong and he was right. Because we just have this tendency to read the Old Testament like it's a Jewish book. Or this is the Christian way to do it. We say that the, the, the truths of the scripture are hidden in the Old Testament and revealed in the New Testament. And so we say, well, things like the Trinity or the Incarnation or the two natures of Jesus or the vicarious satisfaction, that they're hidden in the Old Testament, but they're revealed explicitly in the New Testament. Now, eh, it, we want to start reading the Bible like a Christian book, the whole thing, to realize that Old Testament and New Testament alike are about Jesus, his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, his winning for us life and salvation. In fact, the two texts that describe the suffering and death of Jesus most clearly in the entire Bible are not in the New Testament. Can you imagine that? If you're, if you're doing a little Bible trivia game and they said, what passages, where, where do you find the most explicit uh, description of the suffering of Jesus on the cross? Surely you would guess one of the Gospels. But no, it's Psalm 22 and and. And Isaiah 53 and 54, that's where the, the, the suffering of Jesus is most clearly described in the whole Bible. It's amazing. And Jesus is in the, in the Old Testament three ways. This is important to remember. Number one, Jesus is in the Old Testament by promise. So all the prophecies are about Jesus. The, I will put enmity between you and the woman and your seed and her seed. He'll crush your head, you'll crush his heel. Genesis 
3.15, and to, to uh, Abraham, you're in your seed, the nations of the world will be blessed. Deuteronomy, I'll raise up a prophet like you from among my brothers. The, 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 even the Balaam prophecy and numbers about the star and all the way through that'll be born in Bethlehem, that you'll look on him whom you pierce. That, you, see, you see, he comes to you uh, meekly riding on a donkey. All, all of these great promises. That he, that he will he will rise and shepherd his people. I myself will shepherd the flock. That that he will be forsaken. That he will be ascended. That he leads captivity captive. That behold, uh, I will put all things under your feet. Or I, you were made him a little lower than the angels, and you exalted him uh, above all things. All these great promises in the Old Testament. And we could find them by reading the New Testament and see the places where. The Old Testament is quoted and given to us as fulfilled. So Jesus is there, number one, by promise. Number two, Jesus is there by picture, sometimes called type. In other words, the Lord, the Lord manifests his own character to us, and it shows up in various patterns. So, for example, the lamb was killed and the blood was put across the doorpost for the exodus, and that becomes a picture of the crucifixion. Or the ram was caught in the thicket. When Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, and that teaches us the vicarious satisfaction God will provide, or, or the 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 sacrifices that happened on the Day of Atonement, and even the 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 um, the tabernacle, and then the temple is a is a painting, a, a physical picture of what the heavenly throne room looks like. And we see in the prophetic office a, a foreshadowing of the of the prophet to come, and in the high priest, a picture of the high priest to come, and so forth. And David, we see, you know, in his throne, we see a picture of the one who is going to chase after him, so that we see Jesus there by picture. And then there's a third way that Jesus is there, and this is the most forgotten, but mo the most obvious, is that Jesus is there in the Old Testament just by being there. <laughs> he's just, He's there. So when you see the soldier of the Lord standing before Joshua, when you see the angel of the Lord in the burning bush, when you see the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day to visit Adam and Eve, when you hear a phrase like, when you hear a phrase like, the word of the Lord came to Amos, you should think, I know who the word of the Lord is. That's what John 1 tells me. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word is Jesus. In John chapter 1, it says, Nobody at any time has beheld God, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has made him known. So that every time God is being made known, every time God is made visible, that's Jesus there with only a very few rare exceptions. But that should be our understanding and our rule. Okay, I don't remember what we're talking about. Oh, yeah, how to read the Old Testament. So when we go to the Old Testament, we find that, that, the, that the scrolls of the prophets are like are like the swaddling clothes that are wrapped around Jesus. That's the picture that Luther's putting before us here. If you want a picture of the Old Testament, you should take a, you know, a scroll. You know, Remember those old scrolls? They'd have is roll them around. It's old vellum scroll, and you should think of it, instead of being wrapped around like a pole, a piece of wood, you should just picture it wrapped around Jesus. That's the picture. It's like, you know, it's like a, it's like a, the, the script, the Old Testament prophecies are like the tort, are like the tortilla wrapped around Jesus in carne. Okay. Here's the last passage. 
See how we're doing on time here for Andy Bates. So we do a little Nunc Domina. Yeah, we got time. Uh, this is from Luther's Christmas Eve sermon, uh, Luke chapter 2, probably from similar time, 1521 or 1522, Luther preaches. Jesus lies in the manger. Look at this so that you may be certain that only Christ is to be preached in all the world. What else is in the manger than the gathering of the Christian people in the church to listen to the sermon? Sorry, let me read that again. What else is the manger than the gathering of the Christian people in church to listen to the sermon? We are the animals that go with the manger. There Christ is placed before us. And with this food we are to feed our souls, that is, lead them to the sermon. He who goes to listen to a sermon goes to the manger. But the sermons must deal with Christ, for not all mangers hold Christ, and not all sermons teach the faith. Notice there was only one manger in Bethlehem in which this treasure lay, and it was, in addition, an unused, despised manger, which at all other times contained no fodder. Thus the preaching of the gospel is free of all other things. It has Christ and teaches only Him. Should it, however, teach something else, then it has already ceased being Christ's little manger and has become the manger of Calvary horses uh, filled with the physical fodder of temporal teaching. But so you can see how Christ, wrapped up in the cloths, signifies faith in the Old Testament. Let me cite a few examples. Then he goes on to mention Isaiah chapter 7 and the cleansing of the leper and something about the Sabbath day and something else. Now you get the point. And I don't, I don't know why Luther says that the manger is an abandoned, empty manger. Maybe because there was, they had, there was room for the Holy Family to go in. So it's like an abandoned barn, even. It's not even just a barn. It's an, it's an old, empty barn. And he says, this is a picture of the church, that in the church we should go to hear about Jesus. In the sermon, we should go to hear about Jesus. In the preaching and the teaching that happens in the Lord's church, there ought to be mention, at least, and maybe we can do better, of Christ. This, after all, is what it means to be a Christian. It's to believe in Christ. So, so Luther gives us this picture. Now, how, how far away is this picture from Luther than, uh, than, the, than the way that it's normally taught? You know, the way it's normally discussed, like we talked about earlier. This is a, here's this old, ratty, stinky manger. We have this old, ratty, stinky Bible. But the, mo but the most important thing is, is Jesus in it? No. No, we treasure this thing. We treasure the Scriptures. We treasure every word of the Scriptures because this is given to us by God to bring Christ to us, our Savior. And we don't despise it. We don't stand in judgment of it. We don't put up our nose at it. We don't disdain it. It has all sorts of wild stuff in the Bible. I mean, apparently today people think the wildest thing is the 24 hours of creation. I don't know why we've picked that out as a thing that we've got to fight over because there's, a, there's wild things on every page of the Bible. I mean, there's a talking snake and there's a talking donkey and there's all sorts of miracles and there's floating axe heads. And, I mean, there's why we pick that one as something to fight over maybe would be an interesting thing to consider. But, but there's all sorts of wild things in the Bible, and that's the point. The Lord gives it to us so that only the humble can get it. 
so that only the humble will have it, so that only the humble can walk through this door. There's this old picture that the the old preachers used to use. I, I used to hear this all the time, that there's this door in Jerusalem, and they made this door in such a way that to get through it, you had to bend over and walk through it. They made it and so like you couldn't get the horses in there. The cam there was camels. You could get the camels through there, but they would the camels would actually have to go down on their knees and crawl through this door. And this is how this is the way that the Lord has has put a door to the scriptures. That if you're gonna come puffed up and prideful, you won't be able to fit in. Yeah, that's how it is to get into the, it's amazing, isn't it? To get into the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. You can see where the old door was, this big, huge door, and then they made it smaller, then they made it smaller again. And now to get in there, you've got to duck down and step over this ledge. You've got to humble yourself to go in to behold this majesty. So it is with the Scriptures. It requires this humility, the, the humility of faith, to come and hear what the Lord has to say to us. Okay. So let this quip, this cliche, this attack, or this assertion that Luther was a higher critic, uh, that he said the Bible is the manger that, that gives us Christ, that he meant that the Bible could be dismissed as the, somehow full of errors, let that be sunk. And we'll put a, we'll put a link to these quotes uh, up on the blog as well. So if you go to wolfmuller.co, Maybe let's do, I'll just do it right now, I'll write it down. Let's go wolfmuller.co slash manger, wolfmuller.co slash manger. You can print out these things and find them there yourself. All right, let's talk about the Nogna Menace. we got some time. We're halfway through. Thanks for sticking with me, by the way. You're listening to Cross Defense right here on KFUO, broadcasting live from the Tower Studio in Austin, Texas this last day. <laughs> Yesterday is what we call it. This yesterday was the presentation of Jesus in the temple. That's the day, 40 days after the birth of Jesus, that Mary went up to offer uh, the sacrifice that was appointed by Moses. He had given different days for purification, depending on if you had a boy child or a girl child. And that all that has to do with the, the blood and the purity laws of the Old Testament. And maybe it's helpful for us when we're talking about this, because this is far away from us. I mean, we have not had to deal with with uh, cleanness and uncleanness at the temple for a long time. So we've maybe lost the thread on that a little bit. So just to remind you that when we're talking about clean versus unclean, we're not necessarily talking about sinful versus holy. Those are, those are not the same category. So, for example, you could become unclean by touching a dead body. But look, when your dad died, you went to take care of his body. You would go and become unclean. This meant you couldn't go into the temple until you had cleansed yourself. Or there was a, some other, you know, especially for women and the stuff surrounding childbirth and all the feminine health kind of stuff, there was uncleanness there. But that didn't mean that there was, that there was something sinful about it. We, don't, we just want to break those two things up. We normally think unclean and sinful are the same sort of thing, but they're different, different categories altogether. So the law says once you've had a baby, when you go at 40 days, you can go and make an offering especially if you're close to Jerusalem, you'd want to do it. And so the Holy Family did. They trek up from, from Bethlehem, six miles away, up to the temple in Jerusalem, and they go and offer two turtle doves. And when they are there, they run into these two curious characters, Simeon and Anna. It's fascinating. 
In fact, one of the things that's fascinating about it to me anyways is that, you know, normally we think of Jerusalem and we think, boo, Jerusalem. I mean, the time of Jesus, it seems like Jerusalem was a real mess. It didn't seem like there was much faith at all in Jerusalem. It didn't seem like there's, there's anybody that's believing. And this is one of the reasons why it's so nice to hear of Simeon and Anna and also Zechariah and Elizabeth and even Mary and Joseph in that way is that, no, there, look, there's this faithful group that's there. And Simeon especially is faithful. Yeah, look at how, how it describes him as devout and as holy and, and having the Holy Spirit. And he's waiting, it says in the text, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. But not just for that. I mean, that's how all the Christian. I mean, this is our basic Christian posture is we're waiting. We live between the, the promise and the keeping of the promise. We live between the word of God and the action of God. That's always the case for the Christian life. But, and that's how it was for Simeon, and that's how, that's how the faithful are described, those who are waiting for the consolation of Israel. Like the text, remember this on Isaiah 40? This was an old church camp verse. I remember when I went to T-Bar-M. I wonder if that's still a church camp, T-Bar-M. And the, the the first time I went to church camp, they had that theme for the week. Those who wait on the Lord will mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. And you just think to yourself, Lord, why can't it be something else? Why can't it say, those who call on the name of the Lord will mount up on wings like eagles. Those who trust in the Lord will mount up on wings like eagles. Why does it have to be waiting? We're just bad all the time. We're bad at waiting. But that's what it means to be a Christian. So here's Simeon waiting for the consolation of Israel. But, but also something more specific. Because the Lord had come to Simeon and told him that he would not die before he saw the Lord's Christ. Now what an amazing promise. I don't know. Any other place in the scripture where someone had such a, a profound, direct revelation of the will of God? So Simeon's walking around, and this guy's bulletproof. I mean, he knows that he's not going anywhere until the Christ comes around. Now, unlike Anna, who the text tells us spent all her time in the temple praying, and I'm trying to figure out why Luke wants to tell us where Anna's from, this, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. I don't know exactly what that means. But, but anyway, so here comes Simeon, though. He's not in the temple all the time. And so the Holy Spirit kind of, it seems like he indicates that the Messiah is there. The one you're waiting for is that you'll find him in the temple. And so Simeon is led by the Holy Spirit into the temple, and he finds the baby Jesus and somehow he recognizes, this is what we're talking about, the swaddling clothes business. He recognizes in the, he sees through the humility of this child. He, he sees through the human frame. He sees, he sees through the, the humility of Mary and Joseph. Nobody else notices it. I mean, Jesus and Mary and Joseph just look like a normal family to everybody else. But Simeon sees through it with eyes given, opened by the Holy Spirit, and he takes this child into his arms and he lifts him up and he says, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word, for mine eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the sight of every people, a light to reveal you to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Can you imagine how marvelous that would be? In fact, it even tells us that Mary and Joseph marveled at these things. 
Huh. Well. And then and then he hands him back to the child and he gives Mary a blessing. Now that's the now that's the basic story. But there's something really profound in here is that Simeon can can take up Jesus in his arms and he can say, Okay, now now I'm ready to die. That's what we'll talk about. That's what we'll talk about on the other side of the break. We'll go to it now and, and come back. It'll be a quick one. Uh, but stick with me. We'll go to the break. And on the other side, we will talk about how we can be ready to die like Simeon. How about that? Stick with it. You're listening to Cross Defense. Ecclesiastes 10, verse 10 states, If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Find this true wisdom in Christ on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on Worldwide KFUO. Sharpen the iron of your faith together with two pastors as they take up the sword of the Spirit to proclaim the gifts of Christ crucified and risen for you. All right, welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. You know that already. Let's get to it. We're talking about Simeon and the Nunc Dimenis, which is so fantastic. Lord, let your servant depart in peace. This has found its way into the liturgy of the Lutheran Church. I think this is specific to the Lutherans. I think most Catholic and and uh, Anglican traditions just use the Nunc Dimenis with the evening prayer or the Vespers or something like that. I think. I, I'm not 100% sure, but I think a, a few centuries ago, the old Lutherans brought it into the communion service, the main and chief service of the liturgy, and it comes after the Lord's Supper, which is an amazing place for it. But it means it's right there at the end of the service. And I remember growing up in the old ELCA with the green hymnal, and we had the Nunc Dimenis there. And I thought it when we said, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace, we're saying, Lord, now we're ready to go home. <laughs> Lord, now we're ready to leave church. In fact, you might as well have been saying, all right, time to go get Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> I mean, that's what, that's, that's what I heard when we sang the Nunc Dimenis, is the church was over. And that is missing the point. Because when Simeon says, Lord, now let your servant depart. He's not talking about departing the temple. He's not talking about departing Jerusalem. He's not talking about departing from the presence of, of Jesus there in, in the temple with Mary and Joseph. He's talking about dying. He's talking about leaving this world. He's talking about, he's talking about kicking the bucket. What are the other names that we have for it? I always forget because I always make fun of people for using all the bad names about death. Uh, he says, "He says now I'm ready to die. Lord, it's, a, it's enough. I have everything. You've kept your promises. You, you, it's happened. I've held in my arms the salvation of the world. And maybe that's the key word, salvation. I've held in my arms, I've seen with my eyes the salvation of the world. Now, how can Simeon see this when no one else can? This is the Holy Spirit and his work to open our eyes. It's related to what we were talking about in the first half of the show. How the Old Testament is the is the swaddling cloths and the manger of our Lord Jesus. The Lord opens our eyes so that we can see these glorious truths in His Word. The Lord opens Simeon's eyes so he can see this glorious truth that Jesus is God in the flesh. And not only that, not only is Jesus God in the flesh, Jesus is the Savior. 
Now, we, we are so used to thinking about those as the same thing, right? Well, God in the flesh and God the Savior, that's the same thing. But it doesn't have to be that way. Jesus could have come down into our human flesh and blood in order to wreck house. I mean, he could have started destroying the temple and then just not stopped. He could have just kept going. We deserve it. He could have come to be the judge, incarnate, shown up in his transfigured glory, radiating everywhere, just wiping sinners out with his presence. Plow. But he doesn't. He hides himself in our flesh so that he can hide himself even further in our suffering, all of it to reveal the heart of God. And Simeon sees it. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the sight of all people, a light to reveal you to the nations and the glory of your people Israel. This one, he says, is appointed for the rise and the fall of many. And Mary and Joseph marvel these things, treasure them in, her heart, in their hearts. Now, now, how can Simeon be so ready to die? How can he look at his death and presumably the death of all the, 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 the faithful around him and say, that is not dying, that is departing in peace. How can he give death such a sweet name? Remember that dulce nomine morte, the sweet names of death that the old theologians used to talk about? How the Bible gives all these candy names to dying, like gathering to the ancestors and gain, to live as Christ, to die as gain, and to depart, to, to go from death to life or sleep. Here's another one. To part in peace. To part in peace. Now, the main thing there is peace. All of us have to depart. But we want to depart in peace, and we want to know that we're departing in peace. And the way that that happens is by knowing that Jesus is the Savior of sinners. The way that we depart in peace is by knowing that Jesus is the one who has made peace between man and God. The, the way that we get to this place is none other than faith. And whenever we talk about the the sweet death or the good death, whenever we talk about dying well, that's really what we're talking about. Dying, trusting that Jesus is the Savior. Dying, knowing that Jesus is the one who has suffered and died already for me, that he has risen from the dead, and that I will live forever with him. To, to die well is to know with Simeon that all my sins, all my failures, all my guilt, all my shame, all of it was carried by Jesus to the cross and was there nailed to the cross, <laughs> made a public spectacle, and that he has borne God's wrath. He's, he's drunk from the cup of God's wrath all the way to the dregs. I remember when Jesus was in the garden, I was thinking about this this morning. Jesus was in the garden, and he said, he said, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And he prayed there with great drops of blood streaming from him as he prayed for it three times and, and said, not my will, but thy will. But if it's possible, let the cup pass from me. 
Well, why didn't Jesus want to drink it? What was in the cup that was so distasteful to our Lord? What was in the cup that was so appalling to him? What was in the cup such that he prayed with, with this great earnestness that it would pass from him, if at all possible? Let this cup, this is the last resort. What's in the cup? What's in the cup is Simeon's sins. What's in the cup is your sins and my sins and the anger of God over all the things that we have done wrong. That's the cup that Jesus drinks, and he drinks it all the way down so that there is no wrath left. And Simeon sees that. All wrapped up in this little baby. And he rejoices. Lord, I can die now. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared before the sight of all people. And dear friends, it's, it is the same for us. I mean, we, Simeon is our teacher, and we are his students. And he, by his song, opens our own eyes to see that this one, Jesus, is also our salvation. <laughs> that there's no wrath left. That it's been spent on Christ. And faith grabs a hold of it. Faith grabs a hold of this child. Faith grabs a hold of his word. Faith grabs a hold of his promises. Faith grabs a hold of his trustworthiness and his forgiveness and his blood and his spirit and his kingdom. Faith grabs a hold of it and just won't let go. So faith makes us ready to die. Not only ready to die, but excited for it. So we can say with Paul, to live is Christ... You know, this verse has come, I don't know, I think I've preached on this verse for three months in a row now. To live is Christ, to die is gain. It's true that it's appointed for man once to die and then to be judged, but Jesus has been judged already for you, and he has made the judgment that you are righteous and holy. That's the doctrine of justification. That's done. It's finished, he says. Father, forgive them. Today you will be with me in paradise. Lord, let your servant depart in peace. Well, may God grant us his Holy Spirit so that we can pray this with Simeon. <laughs> we can pray it now and pray it on the last day and on the last day of the world. Lift up our eyes and know that, that when Jesus comes, it's our redemption that's drawing near. There's the Nook Menace. And it's no wonder, by the way, huh, it's no wonder that Mary and Joseph marveled at these things. For the Lord was revealing to them, too, that this little baby of theirs was more than just their baby. This little baby is the friend of sinners. This little baby is the savior of the world. This little baby is God in the flesh. And the blood pulsing through his veins is going to be the thing that washes away the stain of sin from the Garden of Eden. How marvelous that they treasure these things in their hearts. I guarantee you, dear friends, that, that Mary and Joseph were never bored with theology. <laughs> 
and neither should we. Hey, thanks again for listening to Cross Defense. It's always my pleasure uh, to be with you week after week. We'll be back next Monday talking about some more theology, igniting our theological imaginations, filling them with the words of the Lord and the kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And hey, if you're ever in Austin, Texas, I'd love for you to drop by and visit St. Paul Lutheran Church right here in downtown Austin and also Jesus Deaf Lutheran Church on the south side of of Austin, love to have you come and visit us when you're here. If you're interested in more theology, you can visit wolfmuller.co. That's the website. All this stuff ends up there with the videos and everything else like this. And go check wolfmuller.co slash manger, maybe tomorrow. Hopefully I'll get it posted up tonight. wolfmuller.co slash manger. And you can read all those Luther quotes about how Jesus Christ is wrapped up in the in the in the cloth of the scripture, the pages of the Bible carry to us Jesus. The pages of the Bible, the pages of the prophets, the pages of the apostles are all delivering to us Jesus Christ. God be praised for that. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. God's peace be with you. Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org. Thanks as always for being a Cross Defense podcast listener. There's a lot more theology at wolfmuller.co, so I'd encourage you to go there. And thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. If there was something helpful here for you, I'd love it if you'd share it with someone. Uh, that you love or care about or someone that you think might be interested in the curious theological topics. We want to keep in, invigorating this theological imagination that the Lord has given to us and rejoice in the joy of our theology. So thanks for being part of the fun. We'll talk to you next week. God's peace be with you.